0: Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. If you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation 11, uh, verses 14 through 19. We'll look at that. And the text is about the announcement that the kingdom is coming, and the way the world's getting and the way that even our personal lives, you can start to feel like, well, is this all hopeless? Are we helpless? And we're not. And I have some pictures I want to say. Maybe this is, this is how you feel about life and about what you're going through. And maybe this, this is what you feel like. You feel like you just did a big face plant right into the dirt because of the way life is treating you, the way life is going. And I get it. That's how Israel feels right now. ...with what they're seeing in the Middle East. They just did a big face plant and they're like, man, we're on our own. Or maybe you feel like this guy and you just say, you know what? I got a lot of irons in the fire. If I add one more piece of straw to the camel's back, the camel is going to break, so to speak. I don't know how this guy loaded that whole thing up, but he did somehow. But some people feel that's how my life feels. I can't add any more to it, and if it does, I'm going to go over the cliff... And that's how a lot of people feel because life is difficult. There's no doubt about it. We just look at the geopolitics of the Middle East and you're like, man, that's terrible what's what's happening over there. People are being gassed and people are helpless and hopeless. Are we really like that? People will say, well, man, my marriage is growing apart and the reality of, of what I would like to see in my life, it, it, the gap between that versus the reality of what I'm living is, is getting ever bigger, and life is just continuing to get full of disappointments, Brandon, and people are getting sick, people are dying on me, and people are traumatized, and there's a lot. If you live this life long enough, there's a lot thrown at you. It's hard to deal with. But the issue is, do we have hope? Are we helpless? And we're not. What God is saying is this, and you can see this in the text, is he's talking to the tribulation saints who are going through the worst time in history and he's giving them a hope and telling them you're not helpless I'm going to help you and I want you to think on another level I want you to think of a multiple narrative that's happening yes I'm not going to deny what's happening to you God's saying but there is another narrative I'm doing something for your betterment I'm doing something in the future to give you hope and it's going to be for you and it's called the kingdom age we pray that in the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we're talking about. This kingdom age, this idyllic age ushered in by the Messiah. Absolutely, the conditions are perfect. The animals return back to Edenic conditions. There's no people struggling for food or water. Everything is given over freely to them. Unbelievable, perfect conditions. And you and I, we get our lives back. Everything we lost in this life is given back to us a hundredfold. He promised that to the disciples. So this life keeps taking away, but God's saying, in the future, I'll give it everything back. But you've got to hope. You've got to trust me on this. And you've got to keep this narrative running in your mind. Otherwise, you'll become discouraged and lose faith. You will stop in your progression. You will get bitter. You will start protesting. You will get just... Just so angry and resentful, you will stop moving in your Christian life. And he doesn't want that for any of us. Again, let me show you the context in which we're in. I think in your bulletin we put a little uh, chart in there. And in that chart is uh, the second half of the tribulation. And it should say second half of the great tribulation. Then you have the seven bowl judgments. So if you have that, what you want to see is this. What What is it saying? What you're going to see today is the the announcement of the seventh trumpet and in contained in the seventh trumpet are the seven bold judgments and you can see the seven bold judgments laid out on your handout and you're like okay there's a lot of numbers there's a lot of sequencings what is this all about it is about god announcing how the kingdom is going to get established and he's saying I'm going to pour out this judgment, and these judgments, these bold judgments, are what is going to usher in the kingdom. And so that's why you'll see heaven celebrate in the passage because the announcement that these are going to happen to bring in the kingdom has finally arrived. And for you and I, as we look at this, it is as sure as what God says. If He says it, it's going to happen. But here's the idea. It has to get worse before it gets better. And part of the takeaway for you and I is, you and I are going to have to go through a lot of mess, a lot of trouble in our lives. But he is saying, take heart. I have overcome the world, and I'm going to usher in this kingdom. But you've got to trust me on this. And by trusting him, you can actually cope with life better. You can actually manage through life better. So I give you that just to kind of set the setting so you can see where we're at. Let's go to the text and unpack this a little bit in what he's saying. And we'll start in verse 14, and it says, The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Let me explain when you see the word woe what it means. In Hebrew, it's oy. You'll see the Hebrews say oy a lot of times. Oy is basically a theological pronouncement by God that is a pronouncement that sets in motion judgment on a people. And Jesus did this in Matthew 23 when he announced the oives to the Pharisees. Woe to you, Pharisees. Remember that whole thing in Matthew 23? He was pronouncing doom to them, judgment to them. Him announcing this, it enacted The whole system. And that's why you see the woes. Now this is the third woe. What has happened in the first two woes? The first woe has been a plague of scorpion locust demons that have attacked humanity, unregenerate humanity for five months. God does not permit them to die, but they are attacked. The second woe is releasing 200 million demons to attack and kill one third of humanity. And now we get to the third woe. And the third woe encompasses what's called the bowl judgments, which culminates at the second coming. And so this pronouncement of judgment is meant to say, this is how the kingdom of darkness ends. Let's continue with the text, verse 15. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, the kingdoms of this world... Now, kingdoms should be translated kingdom, singular... Of this world have become the kingdom, not kingdoms, kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ or Messiah. This is the pronouncement of the kingdom. And notice the tense that it's in. This is still future. It hasn't happened. But yet, in the Greek, it's in the aorist tense. It's called a proleptic aorist. Real technical, but what it means is, even though it's future, as God is stating it, it is like he has stated it's already a done deal. It's a past tense. Once he states it, it's done, finished. It's like the game has already been played. Victory has been won. That's how you should interpret what he is saying. And the whole text is like this. It's all in this aoristic proleptic that's saying it's a done deal. And so he's saying the kingdom is going to be established. It's done. And why do the inhabitants of heaven celebrate? Because we have to trace the history of humanity and what happened. What happened is when Adam and Eve were created, immediately a usurper called Satan came to usurp them. They were given dominion over this planet. They were our kings and queens, is Adam and Eve. They were given rulership over this planet, dominion. But they were usurped and tricked and, tempt- and they fell into temptation and they lost the right to rule. And that usurper, Satan, took their right and became, as Scripture calls him, the god of this world, little g. Jesus called him the ruler of this world. He became the usurper. And that usurper, early on in Genesis, tried to formulate all the nations together, all the people under one leadership under Nimrod and have this one humanity oppose God and worship Satan only. That happened at Babel. God confused the languages and set that in motion to dismantle what Satan was trying to do. As you recall, our Lord, in his temptations, in his 40 days of temptations, one of his temptations was he was taken to a high mountain by Satan. And Satan came to him and said, If you will just bow to me and worship me... I will give you all these kingdoms. You will have the power and the glory. I will give them all to you if you'll just worship me. Obviously, Jesus didn't bite on that temptation. He passed the test. But Satan will offer that again to another person called the Antichrist, and the Antichrist will take that offer and take the kingdoms of this world. But nonetheless... What is predicted in Scripture is eventually the kingdoms of this world conglomerate together into a one-world government, one kingdom. That's why it's singular in the text. It should be kingdom because it forms into a one-kingdom system under the Antichrist, under the rulership of Satan. And basically Jesus is going to come back to destroy the usurper and take the kingdom back because Jesus in Revelation 5 Because he went to the cross and paid the price not only for our redemption, but he paid the price to get the right back to rule the planet at the cross, he now has the title deed to planet Earth to be the ruler. So when Jesus comes back, he returns as the rightful king to destroy the usurper and destroy his satanic kingdom. That's what this is all about. Now, to understand the kingdom, I also, on the back side of that handout, I want you to refer there real quick. I don't want you to get too technical. But you see God's kingdom program on the back? I don't want to go too much into this, but I want to show you on number three that God's kingdom is multifaceted. And as you can see, there's always the eternal kingdom. There's the spiritual kingdom that rules in the hearts of believers right now. That's where the term seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. That's called the spiritual kingdom. That's made up of believers of all time. Then there's there's the theocratic kingdom, which God ruled over Israel. And you saw that in the Old Testament. Then right now what we're we're in is called the mystery kingdom. This is God's rule through the hearts of believers while the king is not on the planet. The king is in heaven right now. And so the kingdom, what we're looking forward to, that we're talking about, is what's called the messianic kingdom. And you can see all the scriptures for that. This is Messiah's rule over earth, over Israel and the Gentile nations from the throne of David and from Jerusalem. And that's what this text is referring to. And you can study this in your own leisure. But we are looking forward to this day where Jesus rules from political Israel for a thousand years on this planet. He reverses the curse takes away all evil, binds Satan for a thousand years, and his demonic horde. There is no demonic warfare at that point in time. That's the kingdom we're talking about. It is a rule of iron, and this iron rule keeps down outward behaviors of sin. So what you and I used to hear in the mystery kingdom, we see outward acts of sin, and it's not put down. But in the kingdom age, it is completely put down. And it says in the text, if you go back to the text... And he shall reign forever and ever. Let me explain that just real quick before we get to some application. That's a Hebraism, which means unto the ages of ages. Unto the ages of ages, which means that the state that gets established by Christ will never end. Now, what does it mean? Because the millennium is only a thousand years. What happens? Well, once the thousand-year reign of Christ is over, it merges into eternity, and Christ continues to rule for all eternity. So you go from one stage to the next, and that's why the Hebraism is there, unto the ages of ages. It just continues on at that point. No longer will sinful humanity ever rule God's creation ever again at that point in time. Never will Satan be the God of this world. Never will sinful man. It is over. Jesus has secured the legal right and will rule for all eternity. And because he is the God-man, he can do that. He can sit on the throne forever because he's the God-man. Okay, that's a lot to ingest, I know. What's the application in some of this before we go on? Here's the application. You have to take this by faith because you're not going to see it. You're not going to see the kingdom now. All you're going to see is bad stuff happening right now. And if you were a tribulation saint, you're going to see really, really bad stuff. And you're going to say, how could any good come out of this? How could any good come out of all the stuff that's happened in my life How can God change this and make it better and work to fulfill his plan and purposes in my life when so many bad things have happened to me? See, that's a faith issue. He is saying this kingdom is certain. That's why he puts it in the aorist tense. It's certain. It's a done deal. We have to trust. And I can tell you this, what the hardest part about this is, and it will be the hardest part for the tribulation saints, is the faith to wait on this. Because we want it right now, man. I would love the kingdom right now. I want my problems to be fixed right now, Jesus. I want my struggles to stop right now. I don't want to wait. Just deliver me now. We all would want that. And that's all of our cry. But even in the Middle East, as you see, what's God doing? Why does it take so long for things to develop? Why in my life does he allow me to continue to struggle with issues? What's going on here? He is saying, yes, you must have faith that this will happen in the future. But until then, I need you to have the faith to be patient and endure, which is very difficult. Nobody wants to wait. But I want you to look at the biblical characters real quick. Even the tribulation states are having to wait three and a half more years until Messiah comes. Abraham waited 25 years until the promised son, Yitzhak or Isaac, was born. Do you know David, when he was told he was anointed king of Israel, had to wait at least 20 years before he was at least king of Judah, and then after that, seven more years till he was the king of all of Israel? It's a long time. Moses wasn't ready to deliver Israel out of Egypt for what? 40 years. In the desert. So you'll see all these timelines where people are waiting. They're given a promise and then they have to wait. They're called and then they have to wait. Why? Why is this theme constantly there? I call you, this is what's going to happen, but you need to wait. It's because God is developing in us the things he wants us to learn so we can change. I'm going to tell you what, there are a lot of Christians who have been instantly delivered. But you know what, compared to the rest of Christianity, they represent like 1%. There's about 1% of Christians have completely been delivered of whether it's alcoholism, drug abuse or whatever. There's about 1% have been completely delivered instantaneously. And I agree, that's a miracle, absolutely. But for 99% of the Christians in this Christian life, they're struggling with their issues. They weren't instantly delivered. And there's reasons behind that. God is wanting you and I to learn something in our struggle. If he just simply instantly delivered us, we would never learn anything. We would actually become legalistic. We would think, well, why doesn't anyone get over their problems? That's the wrong move. That's the wrong thought. See, wounds take time to heal. We need to grow emotionally, spiritually, mentally. That takes time. That can't happen overnight. To grow spiritually mature to become more like Christ takes years and years and years of hours and hours and hours of walking with Christ. It doesn't happen overnight. He also lets sin flush itself out and lets the ramifications and consequences play itself out in this world. You'll hear the term in the Old Testament, he lets the sin fill up. He's letting all the ramifications play itself out. Faith is not overnight. It takes time to develop it. Why you and I are struggling with the issues you and I are struggling, and you didn't say, man, I wish I could be delivered right now, is because you and I have something to learn. And he's trying to brand it into our brains, into our souls, so that we never forget, and we understand why we did what we did, why we got caught in something, why we couldn't get out, and what was the denial structure that we were in to finally get ourselves out of that. And if you learn that, then you have the ability to help others. But if you are instantly delivered and you pray for instant delivery, what happens is you lose the ability to help other people because you don't know how it happened. You were just miraculously delivered. And I understand that God does it occasionally. Occasionally. But most of those people can't help others. So God's not saying deny what's happening to you. He's not saying that. He's just saying learn what you need to learn through this and keep the narrative of the kingdom. One day you won't have to, but learn it now so I can reward you in the kingdom. All that, guys, takes faith, an incredible amount of faith, and it's real easy to simply just protest what's going on in your life. But he says, hold on, the kingdom is coming. Verse 16, watch at the expression of the church. And the 24 elders, this is the church we've established at early on, who sat before God on their thrones, fell on their faces, and worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty. It's a very rare term that's being used right there for Almighty. In the Greek, the one who is and who was and who is to come. So the idea here is he's the Almighty, the powerful one, he's the eternal one. And what did he do? Because you have taken your great power. The idea of taking the great power in the Greek is the idea of he exercises his eternal power and did what? Reigned. Notice it's in the aorist tense. It's, it's past tense, but yet it's future. So God is taking his power and reigning. So it's a done deal in the future. So what we're supposed to take from this is, is why the church is there in heaven worshiping God as they see him exercise this power to take the kingdom back. It's this. For you and I and for the tribulation saints, the application is God now is acting on our behalf, on their behalf, to use his power to accomplish this, which means because he's the eternal one, he has the resources to do this. He cares for us. He's working on our behalf. And this is why Romans eight twenty eight is working for us. All things work for the good of those who love him and are part of the called according to his purposes. God is working behind the scenes, whether you know it or not, to help you to give you hope, to assist you. And the eternal one has the power to do this. A lot of people, when they're at a graveside and they're burying a loved one in the ground, they say it and I hear it. How can any good come from this? How can any good come from this? I don't know anything that could come from this. This is horrible. But you give them some more time. They work through years and years of the grieving process. And before you know it, They see God's providential hand working behind them, working behind the scenes to help them, to get them the right people to help and to get them to the right place. It's amazing to watch that, but God's there. But that's what this is saying. This is why the church right here is praising him because you and I have to understand God is providing for us what we can't provide for ourselves. His power, we don't have that. He has the power to change things. It is that power that gives us the grace and mercy in order to deal with things. Now you might say, well, you know what? My life is going sweet, Brandon. I'm living the dream. It couldn't get better than this. Well, if you're one of those people, you might be in denial. Okay? (laughs) I'm just going to put it out there. If everything, if you're saying everything is perfect in life, it couldn't get any better, I have arrived and you're experiencing heaven, hmm, that's, that's probably called denial. It's kind of like it's kind of like when I go to the doctor <laughs> why is it that when I go to the doctor, their scales weigh me a lot heavier than my scale at home, and then I get there and I'm like, dude, I'm like twenty five pounds overweight or something like that man and 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 then you start saying, "You know what, nurse?" It's because I have all my clothes on. I have my cell phone in my pocket. My wallet is really fat. And, and I have my shoes on. That's why I'm 25 pounds over where I need to be. And what does she do? She just looks at me saying, yeah, right. Yeah, right. You're in denial, dude. The scale at home, what is it, on the moon? Why, why do you weigh less at home? Is it less gravity at your house? You weigh this much here. And so I come away every time I go to the doctor in denial about my weight. And why is it like that? Because there's this denial structure all the time. I'm I'm cool, man. Everything's idyllic. Look, if you're in that mode of I don't need anything, you're in a dangerous area. Because what the scripture is trying to say is he provides what you can't provide for yourself. So we all desperately need him. We desperately need him every hour, every second for what he can give us we're not flying solo. There's no no one out there on a, as an island. And so the idea is trying to change our attitude of saying, no, no, I don't have this thing together. I don't have it. I need him, and I need his power, provision to help me get through this. So it's a matter sometimes of changing our mindset about this. See, a lot of Christians go through 20, 30 years of their life, and they never change. They think they're fine. They think they've arrived. Basically, what they've done is repeated year one of their Christianity, and they repeated it thirty years over and over again. They haven't got any better. It's scary, but you see it all the time. How does he provide? Just to flush this out a little bit more, the God who provides the power to change, change the whole circumstances, change the world. If He's going to help you change, guess what He'll provide? People, not just any random person on the street. He'll provide the body of Christ to help you. If you pray a prayer and say, Lord, I need help, eventually he'll bring someone in your life to help you. That's how he works. So you have to see how he helps. There's not lightning bolts that come out of the sky. Not yet. It will in the future. But at this point, he'll send you the help through the body of Christ. And you need to be aware of that. Let's go back to the text. And now we're going to see the negative side of this and how the people of this world respond to him now this is not you and i this is the people of the world verse 18 the nations were angry and i want to show you this picture okay there's a lot of angry people on here and you can pick them all apart they're all angry for some reason actually believe it or not there was a paper written on leftism uh interesting this PhD a guy did a phd on leftism and what he found, the common phenomenon among all the leftists, Marxists, communists, progressives, whatever you want to call them, have an intense rage brewing inside of them. Does that shock you? It doesn't shock me. It makes perfect sense. Anyway, the rage is all there and you can see that. But look at the text, though. This text, and it goes, and your wrath has come. The idea here is... These nations that you see, these people on the planet, the earth dwellers, are enraged at God. That's who they're mad at. And the way this is described in the Greek is it's a settled, burning resentment. It's not like, hey, I'm just ticked today. It's like, this: I've been ticked all my whole life at God. It's that kind of mentality. And they're still at, at, at raging when his wrath has come. By the way, when Jesus returns, you think the world opens their arms and say, we couldn't wait for you to return? They attack him. They actually turn the guns on Jesus and attack him to prevent him from coming. That's how bad and angry they are. But nonetheless, the wrath comes. And the time of the dead that they should be judged. So the idea is there's a little bit of prophetic telescoping here. It's like looking at mountain peaks and there's valleys in between. The dead of the, the wicked will be judged at the end of the millennium. But it's, it's just grouping everything together and putting all these prophecies together, which is called prophetic telescoping, and then they will be judged. So, But what's going to happen is when Christ comes back, this whole Middle East problem that no one seems to solve, that no one can figure out and deal with all of that that's going on there, it's just a mess over there. And poor Israel is right in the middle of it. It takes Jesus to come back and figure it all out and get them all squared away. He throttles them. There is no being nice at this point in time. You have to understand. This is judgment. The time of grace is over. And he throttles, throttles the Antichrist and the Antichrist armies and the rest of the Middle East. And for the world, for that matter, there's a major bloodbath that happens. I hate to say it, but that is the only answer when you have deep-seated anger of the earth dwellers who are not coming back. That's what the earth dweller term means. It's a technical term for people, humans, who have crossed the line that are not coming back. And so what's left for them? Once you cross the line, there's no more grace and mercy left for you. It's just judgment. Whoa. oive. That's all that's left for you. So you don't want to read this out of context. You have to understand he's talking about earth dwellers that have crossed the line. They've taken the mark of the beast. They're not coming back is the mentality. Now we move to something positive. And that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great. Now, interesting enough, he throws in there positive that that's talking about the Old Testament saints and the tribulation saints that are going to be resurrected at the end of the tribulation. And he's going to reward the Old Testament saints And the tribulation saints at that point in time. The church has already been rewarded because the church is in heaven in the scene. They've already been rewarded because the church is raptured. So we've got our rewards first, and then at this point, it's pointing to at the second coming, the Old Testament and tribulation saints get their rewards. Okay, gotcha. Then he goes back into the negative about the earth dwellers. And should destroy those who destroy the earth. Now, don't think this is the Sierra Club's best verse. This is not the Sierra Club's, you know, creation care. I know people can misinterpret that. This was written 2,000 years ago. That's not what it's saying. It's not talking about pollution. It's not talking about conservation and, and that evil people destroy the planet. That's not what it's saying. What it's saying is a theme that's been going on through all the Old Testament and into the New when a people group gets so sinful, they pollute spiritually the land. Israel was told of this all the time. We were warned about it. If you have bloodshed in the land, you will pollute the land and I will kick you out. This is talking about moral pollution. That's what it's talking about. It's not save the planet type of stuff. So follow with me cause to understand to destroy those who destroy the earth. Go back to the flood with Noah. In destroying the inhabitants of the earth, the earth dwellers, before Noah's flood, he did something at the same time. He destroyed the planet they were on. Their sin was so grave, he destroyed the planet. And that's a very common theme because they had polluted the planet same thing in egypt he destroyed egypt he hit their land he hit everything their agriculture their animals he destroyed that and now we're seeing this in the tribulation that those who have polluted the earth by their sin now are getting the judgments of god and those judgments of god inevitably hurt the earth that's why when christ comes back he actually has to renovate planet earth and return it supernaturally back to its Edenic conditions because it's ravaged, it's almost destroyed through the judgments of the tribulation. So, it's just like going back to Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve sinned, what did he do to the ground? Cursed is the earth, right? Because of you. So you can't have the inanimate creation higher than its highest creation. Adam and Eve fell. He curses the ground to put them below, to put creation below Adam and Eve. They had to be cursed at the same time. You can't have one piece of creation above the other. So the ground was cursed. So this is what we're talking about. That's where the theme comes from. It's a very Hebraic understanding. So don't let the Sierra Club ever use that verse on you, by the way. That, that's just not the right context. But notice this. Why wasn't God's love enough for these people? Why wasn't God's truth enough for these people? Why wasn't God's grace and mercy enough for these people? Why in their stubborn hearts would they not repent? Why? It comes down to free will and them wanting it their way. That's what they want. They want paradise on earth without God. They want a kingdom without Christ. And by the way, that's exactly what a lot of people in our culture are trying to do through social justice. That's why a lot of the churches are caught up in social justice. They're trying to usher in the kingdom without Christ. And they think wrongly that if they establish social justice, then Jesus will return. It's the reverse. Jesus has to return and set everything right. Man cannot do it. He doesn't have the tools necessary. He doesn't have the power that God has. Let's return to verse 19. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the Ark of His Covenant was seen in His temple. The Ark of the Covenant? What? Well, as you recall, the Ark of the Covenant was in Moses' tabernacle. It was in Solomon's temple. But Moses patterned what he saw in heaven and created the temple artifacts. Okay? Okay. So what you're seeing in this scene is the real ark. Not the copy that Moses made, but the actual real ark. And do you know what the real ark is? The real ark is actually the throne of God. So when he says, I see heaven and I see the ark of the covenant, he is seeing the real ark, the throne of God is what he's seeing. And so why does this pop up? Why all of a sudden? Well, it's twofold. The ark represented the holiness of God. If you recall, the holiness of God, the Shekinah glory would dwell above it. But as God looked down, what did he see in the ark? Commandments that had been broken. Right? That was what's in the ark. So what would happen is the high priest would have to put blood on top of the ark, on the mercy seat... So when God looked down to see broken commandments, he saw it through blood. Because blood is the only thing that could, with the animals, cover sin, but eventually with Messiah, take away sin. And so now what you see is an ark that's covered with blood, Messiah's blood. The commandments have been taken care of because Messiah fulfilled the law. The pot of manna was in there because the manna was God's provision, and Aaron's rod was in there that had budded, which represented resurrection. So God's provision, resurrection, the law has been satisfied by the blood of the Messiah, and so the ark represents two things in heaven. It is the throne of God, but it says this. You have a choice, humanity. This ark could be the place of reconciliation, Or this ark could be the place of judgment. You decide. I will either put the judgment on my son, or I will put the judgment on you, because I'm a holy God. So either way, you need to make a choice, humanity. So that's why the ark is seen, to show humanity you have a choice. And that's the choice that everyone has to make today. But notice that the choice, though... Has an Israeli bent to it? It's an ark. What is the ark associated to? Israel. Is it not? And notice the last phrases, and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, earthquake and great hell. Those phrases that are happening in heaven are associated to Mount Sinai. What's that mean? Mount Sinai is where God gave his law, his revelation of his standards, the revelation to Israel. Don't make this mistake. This is a very Jewish scene. God is saying, I am not wrapped up in the American flag. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. How you're treating Israel will determine a lot. Because when you get to the sheep and goat judgment, how he judges the Goyim, the nations, he judges them based on how they treated Israel in the tribulation. So what you see in the book of Revelation, it's extremely Jewish. And it's sending a message to the Goyim. If you choose to come to me and reconcile, then in the tribulation, your faith will be demonstrated on how you treat the brethren Israel. And you can see this in Matthew 25 at the sheep and goat judgment. When did we see you in prison? When did we see you hungry and naked? When you did it to the least of these, my brethren, the Jewish brethren, you've done it unto me. Not salvation by works, but their salvation was evidenced in how they treated the Jews in the tribulation. Very Jewish, by the way. Very Jewish. What's the point of application? Reality has nothing to do with what is visible or invisible. Reality has nothing to do with what is visible or invisible. It has to do with what God says. The reference to Mount Sinai is about what God says. If he says it, It is good as done. And that's what he's saying through the entire text. And he's saying, trust me, this is where your hope, this is where your help comes from, from what I am doing about establishing the kingdom and working to your benefit. And does God still work to our benefit? Absolutely. He's working with people now if you'll let him. saw an amazing story this last week about God's help and provision, even now. It's about, this, about these witch doctors in Uganda. You know they still have witch doctors? Can you I, I, th- I thought that was like Bugs Bunny cartoons and stuff. But I actually went to Uganda and they have witch doctors. Real live ones. And a lot of them. And there's a big problem in Uganda and a lot of the African countries with witch doctors. Who would think? They're pretty evil. Pretty bad dudes. They kidnap kids and sacrifice them. There's a big problem in Uganda. And there's a witch doctor right there. That's kind of what they look like. They are scary. So anyway, they will kidnap these kids and do sacrifices, child sacrifices. It's a big problem in Uganda. They steal kids all the time. And they steal them out of villages. And so you really have to watch your kids if if you're in Uganda because they'll take them. So anyway, they usually kill the kid in the sacrifice. Anyway, there was a Christian lawyer in Uganda... That uh, was there. And he heard about this one case, about this kid named Charlie, who had been abducted by a witch doctor. He just felt God was working in this whole situation because this kid actually survived what the witch doctor did to him. Because usually what the witch doctors do is they cut off their genitals. And so this little boy named Charlie survived this. They usually die, but he survived it. And this Christian lawyer in Uganda heard about that. And so he said, you know what? He's the only kid that's actually ever survived an attack like this. And so he, he now can act as a witness against the witch doctor. So they went in the bush, and they found Charlie. And they brought him in, and, and this lawyer tried to go to the courts of Uganda, and they said, you'll never get a judge to try this, ever. And he just, you know, he, he kept praying, and, and, and God made a way. They finally, fa- finally found a judge who would try the case. And so guess what? They brought that witch doctor in court in Uganda and charged him. And he was the first capital crime that had ever been uh, uh, done in Uganda towards a witch doctor. And he got convicted, and the death penalty was put on him. But the message that was sent to 41,000 Ugandans, including these witch doctors, was this: "You touch a kid, you're dead. We'll catch you. And that whole process went through the entire villages of these, where these witch doctors are, to put them all on notice to stop it. Well, anyway, that was the first positive thing God did through this Christian lawyer. So he comes back to the United States and he gets a call and he's talking about his story to other people and things. And uh, I guess some other people heard him talk on Christian TV or whatnot. So he gets a call from a doctor in L.A. and said, Hey, I heard your story about Charlie, and he's still alive? Yeah, he's still alive. And he goes, I can fix him. He's like, No, you, you don't understand what's going on. They cut all, all his genitals, man. There's, there's no fixing him. There's no coming back. It's, it's just a bad situation. We did the best we could. He goes, No, nah, no. Nah. I'm the chief head surgeon at Cedars-Sinai here in L.A. I can fix him bring him to me. I'll fix him for free. And he's like, I can I can I can pay for that. Free is good. So they went all the way back to the bush in Uganda and this Christian lawyer went and got and found Charlie in the bush. And they brought him all the way to Uganda from Uganda to the United States and they got him to Cedar Sinai down there in LA. And that doctor, just a genius, restructured Charlie Gave him back his life, basically. And Charlie is, is healed today, basically, through that, the hands of that surgeon. The, Christians, the Christian lawyer that recounts the story said, When you think everything is hopeless, that's when God acts. And God showed up for little Charlie. He survived the butchery of a witch doctor. We went through a trial and got the witch doctors convicted, and Charlie got physically fixed. He says only God could do something like that. That's what God is saying through this announcement. The kingdom is coming, and I'm going to fix everything. But as we're going through this, I will provide for you the help and the hope that you need in your life. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up for our redemption draws near.